Tonight we're going to deal with a very serious subject. I want them to make sure that the slides are shown. I want to encourage you that if you're sitting where you cannot see the two screens to move. Uh, this is um, one of the most important sermons you may ever hear, um, especially at this stage of your life. The two reasons we're going to tackle this subject tonight. The first one is, I wish, growing up as a Seventh-day Adventist, that someone had preached a message like this clearly, distinctly, and consistently when I was growing up. Somebody ought to say amen. Secondly, I preach this message tonight because in our churches, there is still too much sexual sin. In fact, it is not just the young people that are sometimes falling into this trap, but even in positions of leadership and authority in our church, this is one of the areas where our people collapse. So this message, like I said, is not, this is not a, a play message. It's a very serious message. And I am asking God to be with us tonight. Now, I don't have the clicker. I don't know where, where it is, but I'm going to need it, the clicker. Um, I don't know if anybody's up top that can advance the slides for me till we get the clicker. But our scripture reading tonight is taken from Romans chapter 13, starting at verse 11. I cut off the one there, sorry. Starting at verse 11. Romans chapter 13 and verse 11 is our scripture reading, the start of it tonight. And that knowing the time that now is high time to awake out of sleep, thank you, for now is our salvation nearer than when we believed. The night is far spent. The day is at hand. Let us therefore cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. Look at what verse 13 says. It says, let us walk honestly as in the day, not in rioting and drunkenness, not in chambering and wantonness, not in strife and envying, verse 14, but put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ and make not provision for the flesh to fulfill the lusts thereof. Our message tonight, this beautiful Sunday night, is entitled Sexual Purity and Prophecy. Sexual Purity and Prophecy. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this opportunity to, to share your word, to study this difficult subject. I am asking now, Lord, that you send your Holy Spirit in double and triple portion. There are some in here right now on their phones, Lord, that need to hear this message. And the fact that they're on their phone is proof of it. Right now, Lord, I pray that the distractions would be removed. I pray right now that the demons would be bound I pray not right now, Lord, that our own uh, passions would be laid to rest. 
Father God, right now I'm asking for angels that excel in wisdom and strength to be given charge over this place. Pour out your Holy Spirit now and let your word go out, for we know that it cannot go out and come back void. This is our prayer tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's get right into this thing. We're going to go to the book of Numbers. What book did I say? The book of Numbers, the 22nd chapter. Numbers chapter 22. And I want you to really follow along. I hope you can see the screens. If you can't, do not be ashamed to get up and move to the screens. I'm telling you, this message can save you from a life of heartache. So take it seriously. Numbers 22 and verse 1 says, And the children of Israel set forward and pitched in the plains of Moab on this side Jordan by Jericho. And Balak the son of Zippor saw all that Israel had done to the Amorites, and Moab was sore afraid of the people because there were, they were many. And Moab distressed because of the children of Israel. Let me set the stage. The children of Israel, a ragtag bunch of former slaves, marched out of Egypt and through the Red Sea. Pharaoh, the mightiest man on the planet, was washed away because he defied the God of Israel, asking the terrible question, who is this God that I should obey him? When the inhabitants of the promised land heard what Israel has, God had done, terror and panic spread throughout the pagan heathen nations of the land. They were sore afraid. And this story shows you they had heard what God had done and they were worried. Let me tell you something tonight, Northern Caribbean University. Let me tell this to the students, the administrators, the pastoral staff of the church. Let me tell you something. The Moabites are still afraid of you. We ought not act and walk like we're the chickens. We are the victors in this battle. I know it's tough. I know how difficult life is. I know resources are short. But God sent me to tell you that if you are faithful, he will pay you dividends. The land was promised while they were still in poverty. And it, their enemies were afraid. Some of you have enemies. Your enemies are afraid because they know what God can do for you. Verse 4. And Moab said unto the elders of Midian, Now shall this company lick up all that are around about us, as the ox licks up the grass of the field. And Balak the son of Zippor was king of the Moabites at that time. So he said, listen, these, there's so many of these people, if we're not careful, they're going to lick us up. They're going to wipe us out like an ox eats all the grass in a fertile field. So what does he do? Enter the antagonist of the story. A most interesting Bible character. Here is one of the few times in the scripture a false prophet speaks to God. Y'all missing this thing. He's called a prophet, but he's a false prophet. He's the enemy of God's people in many sense. But look at what happens. Verse 5. So Balak sent messengers, therefore, unto Balaam, the son of Beor, to Pethor, which is by the river of the land of the children of his people, to call him, saying, Behold, there is a people come out from Egypt. Behold, they cover the face of the earth, and they abide over against me. So he gives them the background. Verse 6. Come now, therefore, I pray thee, Look at what he asks, B 
Balaam to do. This is what Balak asked for. Balak asked for. Come now, therefore, I pray thee, curse me, this people. Well, y'all call that in Jamaica, Obia. He said, curse him, for they are too mighty for me. Peradventure, I shall prevail, that we may smite them, and that I may drive them out of the land. For I what that he whom thou blessed is blessed, and whom thou cursest is cursed. He said, listen, Balaam, I need you to come. I need you to make a pronouncement against these people because they are too powerful. I'm worried about them, and I know from past experience that the magic, the obia that you work, it works. I know that whoever you bless is blessed. Whoever you curse is cursed. Come, work your obia against them. But look at what happens. When he goes and meets with God, he has a conversation with God. Balaam, the false prophet, has a conversation with God, and he comes back to Balak, and you can read the whole chapter. I, don't have, I wish I had time to read the whole thing. But this is what his answer to Balak is. Numbers 23 and verse 8, his first answer. He actually goes and comes three times to God trying to find a way to curse the people of God. The last answer I'm going to give you is the one that I want to sit with you. Numbers 23 and verse 8 says this. How shall I curse whom God hath not cursed, or how shall I defy whom the Lord hath not defied? I hope you all getting this thing. My grandmother, Alga Clark, from Bethletown, Jamaica, would tell the stories of some, she had seven children. My grandmother would tell her stories on Sabbath afternoon about how the Obia ladies would come after her because she was a Seventh-day Adventist Christian. She would tell us the stories of how they would try to put curses on her and her children. And one night, my Aunt Doreen and my mother confirmed the story. She tells the story of how they, they were in the house and they could hear horses running around the house. But when they looked outside, there were no horses. And the, my grandmother said, listen, all of you children, get down and pray. Some of them were just babies, and they get on the ground. My grandfather drove trucks in Jamaica, and so they all got on the ground. He wasn't home. They were praying, and my mother and my aunt and my grandmother tell me that the horses, the sound stopped running around the house, and eventually they could hear the horses running above the house. And all night they were in prayer as women were working Obia against the house. Nothing happened. The next morning, my grandmother was out in the yard hanging up her clothes to dry. And one of the ladies that had put, tried to put this curse against my grandmother came to the house. And as my grandmother was outside, she said, Mrs., what kind of Obia are you working? My grandmother said, I'm not. She said, I serve the living God. I want you to know that some of you are afraid of stuff that is afraid of you. There's no power in that foolishness when you are under the blood of Christ Jesus. They can jump up and down. They can cut themselves. They can chop up chickens. They can kill goats. They can beat up pigs. They can do whatever they want to do. There's no power in it if you're under the blood of Jesus Christ. Look at verse 10. Numbers 23, 20 says, Who can count the dust of Jacob and the number of the fourth part of Israel? Let me die the death of the righteous and let me last my last end be like his. In fact, Balaam turns around and says, Listen, I wish I could wind up like they're going to wind up. Balak said unto Balaam, 
what hast thou done unto me? I took you to curse mine enemies, and behold, you bless them altogether. He was supposed to curse them, and every time he opens his mouth, only blessings come out. You know, that's what happens when your enemies come against you and you are under the banner of the Lord Jesus Christ. Even what they wish for evil for you turns on them. Jeremiah says to confound them. David even used the word confound them. Your enemies are confounded when you're in Christ. I'll tell you my story over the next two sessions, Monday and Tuesday, of my testimony. But I have learned that if you stay on the side of God, you're always on the winning side. Numbers 23, verse 12. I'm jumping around in the verses a little bit to get through the story quicker, but I want to make a few points. Verse 12 says, and he answered and said, must I not take heed to speak that which the Lord hath put in my mouth? Balaam said, listen, I can't do nothing but say what God told me to say. And here's what he says. Verse 20, behold, I have received commandment to bless, and he hath blessed, and I cannot reverse it. You see that? You can't reverse it. Look at verse 21, the nation of Israel. The first thing he says, I have seen no iniquity. You know what iniquity is? Iniquity is a repetitive lifestyle sin. Something that you are engaged in and will not let go of. But then he says something even more pronounced, but profound, sorry. Verse 23, uh, chapter 23, verse 21, he says, Neither hath he seen perverseness in Israel. You know how you could translate that into modern English? I have seen no perverts in Israel. There is no perverseness in Israel. And let me just, let me, let me spoiler alert you to what's coming in this sermon. Young people, you are being trained, indoctrinated, and, and, and um, acculturated to be perverts, to be sexually deviant. That is what the society is trying to do to you. Now watch this. The Lord his God is with him, and the shout of a king is among them. And that was speaking. This is how powerful this prophecy is. Balaam is prophesying of the Messiah, Christ Jesus, right here. Now, Numbers 23 and verse 23 says this. Surely there is no enchantment against Jacob, neither is there any divination against Israel. According to this time, it shall be said of Jacob and of Israel, what hath God wrought? He prophesied that the day would come when the whole world would say, wow, look at what God has done with Israel. That day came under King David and Solomon. That came, it came again when Christ came and established the church. But I want to say to you prophetically in the last days, that is going to come again when Jesus burst the clouds and there is a remnant who are faithful to him, who follow him. They're going to say, look what the whole universe is going to say. Look what God has wrought. Now watch this. That was chapter 23, right? That was chapter 23. I told my wife I'd keep on my jacket, but I can't do it. Sorry. I tried. That was chapter 23. Let's jump to chapter 25. Let's go to chapter 25 and look how much changes after the three sessions. I only showed you two of them. Look what happens after the three sessions. Numbers 25 and verse 1 says this. And Israel abode in Shittim, and the people began to commit whoredom with the daughters of Moab. What? There was just no iniquity. There was just no perverseness. What happened? Look at verse 2. And they called the people unto the sacrifices of their gods, and the people did eat and bowed to their gods. They, they, now they're committing whoredom. Now they're sacrificing to their gods. Now they're even feeding their gods and eating with their gods. And look at verse 3. 
And Israel joined himself unto Baal Peor, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. What a turn of events that the house of God became a house of whoredom. What a turn of events that the servants of God became the instruments of Satan. What happened so quickly? How could the story change so fast over just a few verses of Scripture? See, Baal Peor, and I, I used to, I, some, sometimes I, when I present on this in seminar form, I go really deep into who Baal Peor was. Baal was the god. Peor is the region. And each region, they worship Baal differently. In the region of Baal Peor, the Moabites had a very sexual uh, uh, disgusting debate. I can't even verbalize some of the sexual practices they did. That huh, The irony is, it was so debased, so disgusting, that with the male and the female prostitutes coming out of the temple, that God said uh, that the, uh, he, his anger was kindled against them. Now watch this. Much of what they did in Baal Peor is commonplace in modern society. In nations that were once Christian nations, or at least you would have, would have claimed to be Christian nations. It is now common occurrence. The sexual sin has reached such a fever pitch that we have become like Israel when she joined herself unto Baal Peor. Ah, uh, watch this. So let's let the Bible, let's let the Bible tell us what actually happened. If you can unravel this mystery, if you understand what happened, it will help you uh, even now in these last days. Look at Numbers chapter 31 and verse 16. It says this. Look, these women caused the children of Israel through the counsel of Balaam to trespass against the Lord in the incident of Peor, and there was a plague among the congregation of the Lord. And if we kept reading in chapter 23, you know that there was a plague that fell upon the people and 24,000 died. Then there was a whole thing where the, where the brother brought the woman the uh, woman into the camp and one brother grabbed the spear and st stabbed the two of them through to stop the plague from happening. The plague cost them 24,000. Sexual sin leads to plagues. And I'm going to show you that the world is in a plague today. And I'm going to show you that some of you are going to be caught in this plague if you do not make Christ your cover. Watch this. Revelation chapter 2 and verse 14 says this. And you want to, so, so we get deep into what actually happened. But I have a few things against thee, because thou hast there them that hold the doctrine of Balaam. Here we start to get the answer in the book of Revelation, speaking to one of the, the seven churches. In fact, this is the church of Pergamos. Here's what it says. It says, Balaam taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel. What did he do? He caused them to eat things sacrificed unto idols. And look at the last one here. And to commit fornication. Mercy. What did Balaam do? He could not curse the people of God. So he gave Balak the information he needed to weaken the spiritual protection of Israel. I hope y'all getting this thing. We're going to go a little bit deeper now. Watch this. Because Hosea talks about it. And you know Hosea, Hosea dealt with a lot of sexual sin in his book. But here's what he says. Hosea 9.10, he says, I found Israel like grapes in the wilderness. 
I saw your fathers as the first fruits on the fig tree in its first season. Look at what happens. But they went to Baal Peor and separated themselves to that shame. They became an abomination like the thing they loved. See how that verse encapsulates it? The first part of the verse, Israel was like the first grapes, like the grapes in the wilderness. I saw your fathers, the first fruits of the fig trees. This is Numbers chapter 22. This is Numbers chapter 23. This is Numbers chapter 24. But Numbers chapter 25 is found after the but. They went to Baal Peor and they separated themselves to that shame. When the people of God knowingly, willingly, walk into sexual sin, it is shameful. All right, let's take it another level. Another scripture. Let's let the Bible give us instruction. 1 Corinthians 10 verse 8 says, Neither let us commit fornication, as some of them committed, and fell in one day, three and 20,000. Now in numbers it says 24,000, but if 24,000 died, 23,000 definitely died. Amen? Some people say the Bible contradicts itself, but that's not the way math works. One number can be inside the other number. It, it works every time. Don't let us. This is the message to the church at Corinth. And Corinth sat on an isthmus in, um, in, the, in the Middle East. It sat on an isthmus. It was a trade town. All kinds of wickedness came through there. One brother was bragging that he had his father's wife. All kind of craziness was going on in Corinth. Uh, uh, just like it is today. And Paul's message to them is, listen, do not commit fornication. So when people tell you, no, you can't gain victory over sin, then you're telling me that Paul is a liar. How could Paul tell you not to commit fornication if to not commit fornication is impossible? Would God tell you to do something he can't give you the strength to do? All right, let's get deeper. Let's go. So here's where we go. How, here's the two questions. How did Satan get so many to fall before reaching the promised land? First question. Number two, is Satan using the same tactics today on the last day remnant church? When I mentioned it earlier, there is no excuse for the leadership of our church, for the men, not even just, I don't, when I say leaders, I don't just mean pastors and elders. I mean the men of the church and the, even the women in position in the church. Is there any excuse for you to be turned from God's servant into Satan's instrument. Here's what the spirit of prophecy, let's go to the spirit of prophecy. Make this thing plain. Patriots and Prophets, page 458. Satan well knows the material with which he has to deal in the human heart. He knows, for he has studied with fiendish intensity for thousands of years, the points most easily assailed in every character. And through successive generations, he has wrought to overthrow the strongest men, Samson, princes in Israel, David, uh, and, and Solomon, by the same temptations that were, success, so, were so successful at Baal Peor. All along through the ages, there are strewn wrecks of character that have been stranded upon the rocks of sensual indulgence, sexual indulgence. As we approach, here it is church, as we approach the close of time, as the people of God stand upon the borders of the heavenly Canaan, Satan will, as of old, redouble his efforts to prevent them from entering the goodly land. He lays his snares for every soul. For how many souls? Ah, here's where the prophecy comes in. The devil 
used sexual sin to keep the children of Israel from marching into the promised land at first pass. They could have saved themselves 40 years of wandering in the wilderness had they been obedient and remained without perversion and if they had remained without iniquity. Instead, they became cowards and 10 of the 12 uh, spies did not have faith. They're, this thing rotted out, gutted their faith. Sexual sin changes your spiritual climate. And here's the kicker. We are now in the last days. We are facing the heavenly Canaan. We are looking to move into the eternal promised land. And Satan is once again looking to use sexual sin to keep you out. Except this time, you won't wander 40 years in the wilderness. You will sleep for a thousand years during the millennium. And you will be resurrected in the wrong resurrection, the second one. These people who participated in this sin never saw the promised land. That generation walked for 40 years and died in the wilderness. Watch this. Ellen White goes on. She says this. By worldly friendships, by the charms of beauty, by pleasure-seeking, mirth, feasting, or the wine cup, he tempts to the violation of the seventh commandment. Watch this, church. It makes no sense. You are headstrong in keeping the fourth commandment and you violate the seventh one. Just because you show up to church on Sabbath, just because you march with the pathfinders, just because you sing on the praise team or preach, or preach a sermon or pray a prayer in church, if you walk out of church and walk into that filthiness, uh, as some of you guys say down here, that kind of slackness, if you walk into that foolishness, it violates everything else you're trying to do for God. Watch this. Here's what Sister White says. Sensual indulgence weakens the mind and debases the soul. The moral and intellectual powers are benumbed and paralyzed by the gratification of the animal propensities. What kind of propensities? Animal propensities. And it is impossible for the slave of passion to realize the sacred obligation of the law of God, to appreciate the atonement, or to place a right value upon the soul. Mercy. If you're a slave of passion, you cannot respect any of the Ten Commandments. You won't. Because for, as the Bible teaches, fornication, sexual sin is the only sin you do in your body. You actually bring it in, and I'm going to show you that medically and physiologically in a second. But you cannot appreciate the atonement. The message Friday night is the importance of knowing you're forgiven. When you engage in sexual sin, Satan is allowed to drape you, drape you in a curtain of shame that makes it so that you cannot see God's power to forgive you or give you victory over sin. Watch this. Ellen White goes on. She says this. Goodness, purity, and truth, reverence for God, and love for sacred, sacred things 
all those holy affections and noble desires uh, that link men with he the heavenly world are consumed in the fires of lust. All right. She goes on to say, the soul becomes a blackened and desolate waste, the habitation of the evil spirits and the cage of every unclean and hateful bird being formed in the image of God are dragged down to a level with the brutes. What Satan has done is to adulterate. The seventh commandment is to not commit adultery. If you take the English word all the way out, what you are doing is adulterating God's plan, God's uh, expectation, God's requirement for how you are to live in the realm of intimacy and sexuality. That's what you're doing. You're adulterating it. You violate the seventh commandment. So let's look at what Jesus actually says about how we were supposed to live. Matthew 19 and verse 4 says this, and he answered and said unto them, have ye not read that he which made them at the beginning made them male and female? How many did he make? Just male and female. Let me tell you something. You're fortunate to go to a university where they're not telling you that there are 50-something genders. Every time I look around, they add five or six. I don't even know how to get names for all these genders now. But the Bible says there's just male and female. Right? Look at verse 5. And said, and let me say this. If you are not careful... What Satan is trying to do by amalgamating this is to remove from you your recognition that you were made in the image of God. He says they were made in the image of God, male and female, he created he them. What Satan wants you to do is not see that you, don't worry how you look, worry that you were made in his image. Verse 5, and said for this cause shall a man leave father and mother and shall cleave to his wife, and they twain shall be what? They shall be what? One flesh. And this is deeper than just sexual intimacy. But that's where it starts. That's, 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 that's one level of it. Verse 6. Wherefore there are no more twain, but what? One flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man put asunder. In fact, in Ephesians, Paul says this. When he, he quotes the same line, that God made them leave mother and father and become one flesh. Then Paul says... Behold, I speak of Christ and the church. That's how deep the marriage connection actually is. Now watch this. Every time you have sex with anybody, a piece of that person is left with you because the two of you have become one flesh. Now watch this. This is where it gets, this is where it gets scary. Everybody you sleep with, you take a piece of them. If you study many who have come out of the occult and you read their books, they will tell you that one of the ways they would pass demons from one person to another is through sexual activity. You know how many, <laughs> I was counseling a woman whose husband I, I went to church with me for years. I thought he was a solid brother, ran off and left her. She got a, <laughs> you don't mess with black women in America, boy. She got a private detective. And ran the man down, found a hotel room with him and the mistress in the room. Banged on the door. And the mistress was telling her where to go. And she, uh, she lucky somebody didn't catch a murder charge that night. That's all I'm going to say. 
But watch this. When the children found out and realized their father was not coming, he left the house and went to live somewhere else so he could be with this woman. The father reached out to the children and said, uh, to the, and said I want to come see you. Uh, talk, talk to, actually reached out to his wife and said he wanted to see the children. You know what the children said? We don't want to see daddy. They said he is no longer the same person. And let me tell you something. They were right. By that time, he was possessed with a different spirit. He wasn't even the same person anymore. The Bible says that the two become one flesh. You can pass spiritual filth from one person to another. Here's the second thing you got to think about. The second thing you got to think about. We'll get to the tangible physical pieces when it comes to germs and viruses. But, but let me talk about, say this as well. Every time you sleep with someone, you take a piece of that person and stick it onto you. The way God designed it is that two white sheets, two equivalents of white sheets, like the tabla rasa, two white sheets are supposed to come together in marriage, and you can spend the rest of your life respectfully uh, being intimate with your partner, growing in love, and learning to enjoy each other for the rest of your life. Right? I'm going to talk about the, the studies on that in a minute. But watch this. When you've been with all kinds of people, instead of two white sheets coming together, it's more like two quilts, two collages, all kinds of people on the paper, on, on the sheet. When you go to be married now, all of that back filth, all of that back mess comes jumping into your marital bed. And it makes it far more difficult for you to ever be happily married. Whether you're a man or a woman, you bring in all of that mess into your marriage. And, you, and this is one of the reasons why the divorce rates are so high. So, how is the devil doing this today? We now know that Balak took the advice of Balaam and he, all he did was take the temple prostitutes, and the spirit of prophecy tells us this, and sent them out to where the men were. I want you to get this. He did not start by trying to corrupt the women. He began by corrupting the men. Once he got the men to see the women dressed in their tight clothes, dressed in their fancy makeup, uh, with all of their stuff on and, and them moving a certain way and, and they caught their eye. And when the men began to follow them, they followed them to the temple of Baal. And before you know it, they start playing that music. We were at the beach today and they start playing that music. I said, I don't know what happened to the music around here, but it don't even sound like music no more. And they start playing that music and all of a sudden the music is playing and before long they're involved in sexual sin with the temple prostitutes and before long they are feeding the idol of Baal. The devil is sending out the temple prostitutes at you young people. Watch this. How is the devil going to do it? The first thing he's going to do he would have to do today in order to get you to fall into sexual sin he has to twist the very idea of love he wants you to believe that love is this romantic you you know when i'm with you the butterflies flutter the birds are flying you you walking on clouds 
He does not want you to see love for what it actually is, which is a principle. All right, let me show you. So what did the devil do? Well, the first thing he did is he told you when you're a child through the Disney commercial, cartoons to follow your heart. That's where it started. When you started seeing fairy tales and the princess uh, was waiting for the prince to kiss her and the end of the story, they say, and they went and lived happily ever after, after magic brought her back. And you were taught in the, you know what they teach in these things? They teach you to disobey your parents on Disney. They teach you to do witchcraft on Disney. They teach you to follow your heart, that love is the most important thing. Let me tell you something. The only love that is most important is the love of God. And what they're trying to do is make you think that romantic love is the highest form of love. Let me submit to you, young people, that is a lie. So what do they do? Well, Hollywood came alive. Hollywood started making movies, and they make movies um, like these. They call these romantic comedies rom-coms and i should have put some of the black ones up here because like movies like how stella got her groove back all about jamaica isn't that funny they, they came to jamaica for that one how stella got her groove back and all these movies right the proposal and failure to launch all of these rom-coms why because what they, when you do read the studies they've done psychological sociological studies on these movies what's interesting is the movies almost always end at marriage in other words, all the excitement is in the, what happens before marriage. And what they're trying to do is make you addicted to the adrenaline, the adrenaline rush that comes with the crush and the process of getting the person. They're not trying to get you used to the oxytocin and the connection hormones that keep you with the person. Oh, uh, don't miss this thing. They're setting you up to believe that what's most important is the chase. When that's not what God says, what God says is what's most important is staying together. It's staying consistent. It's staying loyal to one another. Now watch this. Here's what the science says. The brain looks the same when we're in love or high on cocaine. All right, let's go, let's go a little more. Let's go a little more. Let's look at this. The, the researcher is Lucy Brown. It's a brilliant researcher who's done a lot of work on love and its impact. Let me read you what the secular, secular, I'm going to highlight that again. The secular scientific world says, the phrase love is blind is quite appropriate during romantic love. Elevated passion can actually deactivate the neural pathway involved in negative emotion, emotions such as fear and social judgment. It also may flick off the switch in brain areas responsible for critical thinking. I hope y'all got that. Self-awareness, I hope you got that one, and rational decision-making. When you think you're in love, you switch that off, including parts of the prefrontal cortex. I talked about this Sabbath morning. It turns off parts of the frontal lobe. Watch this. This neutralizing can make us act a little crazy when in the throes of a new romance. And you know what happens? At least in America, I see this. There are these grown adults who cannot commit to a relationship. But many times it's men, but there are some women like that too. Many times it's men, 
And what happens is they have become addicted to the adrenaline rush that comes from the dating process. So they cannot commit because as soon as it settles out and the rush is gone, they've got to find another woman. Now, spoiler alert, this is why it's so easy to get addicted to pornography because the brain loves novelty. So pornography gives you these fantasies, these new situations all the time, and the brain can become addicted to that. Now watch this. I'm going to give you a picture. This is from Lucy Brown's research, actually showing you the brain. Remember that the frontal lobe is the most holy place of the heavenly sanctuary. If your body is a temple, that is the equivalent of the heavenly, of the most holy place. So notice that what, when you think you're in love, and I, even get to, I haven't even gotten to sex yet. This is just you think you're in love. Part of your brain is turned off. The part of your brain needed to make salvific decisions. Isaiah 118 again, come let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. This is why so many young Adventists make the foolish decision of being unequally yoked. Because when they think they're in love, the part of the brain that would tell them, stop your salvation is more important. It's switched off. And what you think is more important is the way you feel. Years later, you wake up and don't even know the person laying next to you. Because the part of your brain that would actually allow you to get to know them. When the Bible says, and Adam knew his wife Eve, we jump straight to sex. I want to submit to you, Adam knew his wife in a way that many of us can't understand. She was wearing one of his ribs until you know her well enough for it to be the equivalent that a rib was taken from you and given to her and that's not a sexual thing that is from spending time in communication watch this and in worshiping god watch this so let me show you some more of the data here this is the areas of the brain switched off by love and this actually shows you the parts of the brain this is not christian research so let me just make that clear this is secular research, right? And it shows you the amygdala, which controls fear, the mid-temporal cortex, which controls negative emotions, the frontal lobe, which controls judgment. You see that? When you think you're in love, you can't even make the judgment to choose the right person. This is why in the cultures where the parents choose the spouse, they actually have better marriages. Oh, somebody didn't like that, but it's the truth anyhow. It's the truth anyhow. Now, I'm not saying your mother and your father ought to pick your spouse, but I am saying you're a fool to marry someone. If you got good parents, you're a fool to marry someone your parents don't approve of. You at least need to look at that thing a second time if your parents are telling you not to do it. Watch this. It also controls, shuts off the part of your brain that controls empathy. So just quickly, I'll, I'll, just so you see that again, I'll switch to the next slide here. and shows you it's the amygdala. So watch what happens. The part of your brain where, especially for women, and they found in the studies that this is worse for women than for men. The part of the brain that controls for, that, that where fear is experienced is turned off. Young ladies, it's worse for you than for men. Happens for men too, because some men marry women they should be afraid of. Let me just say the truth. But young woman, be careful. Because if that part of your brain is turned off, young woman, and you see a man, and let me tell you something. I was, remember I took some young people to Compton, California, to go um, bowling or something, or I forget what we were doing, some young youth 
youth program and it was a Saturday night social. And this girl saw this boy from across the gymnasium or wherever we were. And she turned to me, she said, Pastor, that boy is so cute. Oh, he's so cute. I want to, Pastor, introduce me to him. I said, that boy looked like he about to go and do a drive-by shooting. What are you talking about? That boy don't look cute. That boy look frightening. If I saw that brother in a dark alley, I'd go back to my car and take off. You think he's cute? Listen, because of this, if you're a young lady especially, but young men again, it happens. If you're a young lady, you have to be careful. You are under the control of the Spirit of God because the amygdala is turned off. The frontal lobe is turned off. You can marry a monster and think you're marrying a prince. Because you can't see his claws because you're blinded by love. Now watch this. The other part of the brain that's turned off is the mid-temporal cortex, which controls negative emotions. I want you to get this. When you think you're in love, the part of your brain that makes you feel bad, makes you feel low, is turned off. So you start to associate the feeling of being in love with feeling wonderful all the time. And you think it's because of the person when in fact the person has nothing to do with it. It is the fact that you think you're in love. And so you never feel bad. So you think, if I get with this, especially, oh, mercy, especially if you've grown up in a bad household, especially if you've experienced trauma, especially if that's happened, you meet this person who feels safe because you have no fear, who looks good because your judgment's turned off. He ain't that good looking. And, 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 and because your negative emotions are completely wiped out, you think, I found my safe haven at last. And sometimes you give your heart, your mind, and your life to someone who does not deserve your attention. Look at what the spirit of prophecy says. Here's what Ellen White says from the book Letters to Young Lovers. And if you're in the dating stage, you should make sure to buy a copy of this book, borrow a copy of this book, read this book. Here's what it says. Love is a sentiment so sacred that but few know what it is. It is a term used but not understood. The warm glow of impulse, the fascination of one young person for another is not love. It does not deserve the name. Watch this. True love has an intellectual basis, a deep thorough knowledge of the object loved. That is the young love, page 36. Look at what she goes on to say. She then says, she then says, remember that impulsive love is perfectly blind. It will as soon be placed on unworthy objects as worthy. Command such love to stand still and do what? And cool. You know what's powerful about that statement? Some people say Ellen White is not a prophet. They, they've lost it because she's way ahead of these researchers I'm, I'm quoting. She says that you are just as likely to place the feelings of love on someone who is unworthy, on an, watch this, on an unworthy object as you are on someone who's worthy. You know why? Because you often make the decision that you're in love with the person before you actually know the person. And so you actually have no idea whether they're worthy of your time and attention or not. Watch this. 
Number two, how's the devil going to get us like Balaam got Balak? Balaam got Israel for Balak. He's going to, he started a sexual revolution. He started a sexual revolution. Watch this. So this is from the Digital Encyclopedia of European History. Sexual Liberation and Sexual Revolutions is the name of the article. It, it, the article says this, between 1960 and 1980, sexual liberation movements flourished in northern countries. That's Europe, the United States, Canada, type places. And gave rise to what is commonly referred to as the sexual revolution. This liberation, look at what they think this thing did. Look, look at this. This liberation resided in the struggle for a sexual life that was not, look at this, was not exclusively reproductive and that was extricated from the institution of marriage. They define the sexual revolution as one that makes sex for the sole purpose of pleasure and two, they say, it is to be disconnected from the institution of marriage. You know that there are only two institutions that existed before sin? In the Garden of Eden, what are they? Marriage and the Sabbath. If the devil is ever going to have a Sunday law and a mark of the beast, he must first destroy the first institution. Marriage. Watch this. Here's what they say. This is what they say, not what I say. This is what they say. This revolution consisted of a profound change in mentalities, values, knowledge, and behavior toward a more optimistic and positive conception of sexuality. Watch this. Based on this acknowledgement of sexual pleasure as a source of fulfillment. Now watch. It gets crazy. I'm going to give you just the principles of the sexual revolution. I won't get too deep into it. Number one, the first principle of a sexual revolution, women were liberated physically and spiritually to be as sexually promiscuous as men were. Now, I'm going to show you that they did something to the men to get the men to be promiscuous and then later call the women to follow just like they did in Baal Peor. The second principle of sexual revolution is technology. They invented the the birth control pill, antibiotics, abortion, all these things because one of the principles of the sexual revolution is to remove all perceived and perceivable consequences of sex outside of God's plan. You get, I hope you're getting this. All of these things exist so that you can have sex and think that there are going to be no consequences. But let me tell you something. The devil is a liar. All the pills and all the trips to the doctor's office, all the it can't stop the consequences from coming. The number three was freedom with the automobile and now social media. We'll talk more about social media later in the week. But that freedom that comes, people can DM people and get at people they otherwise would never be getting at. Entertainment and pornography into the mainstream. We'll touch on that. And school training in America especially, the sex education and the move to disempower parents from having say in what is taught to their children on this issue. Wow. So... In fact, Netflix had a documentary called Liberated called The New Sexual Revolution. They have literally gone back and re-upped it to make it worse for your generation. Worse than it was in the 60s and 70s. Now watch what the Bible says about this. 1 Samuel chapter 15 uh, and verse 23 says, For rebellion or revolution is as the sin of witchcraft and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. The fact that they want a revolution 
against the institution of marriage, which God ordained, is a statement that this is not simply something that is designed for your pleasure. This is an occult, a spiritualistic, spiritualism movement of the last days. Because they're not rebelling against marriage. They're rebelling against the one who created marriage. Watch this. So let's see, was there, are there consequences? Here's an article. Casual sex generally leads to more positive emotional outcomes for men than for women study finds. So women have been lied to, and you can look this up, there's all kinds of articles on it. Women have been lied to. The sexual revolution has not improved the condition of emotional and mental health for women. It has worsened it. Watch this, look at what it says. Women report significantly more regret loneliness and unhappiness than men in the wake of a hookup. That's a one-night stand back in the day. According to a new research published in the Journal of Sexuality and Culture. And look at this last sentence. The new findings also indicate that engaging in casual sex to cope with negative emotions tends to lead to negative emotional outcomes for both men and women. This is not Christian research. And they're telling you that when you think that if you just sleep around, you'll feel better, it is a lie from the pits of hell. I had a, 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 a tough young Latino come into the clinic where I work. He had been with four women in the last couple weeks. He was smoking weed, drinking alcohol, trying to party and live his best life. He came in because he was starting to have symptoms of a sexually transmitted disease. He was in the room on the gurney and I was talking to him and, and one of the girls, she's, she's West Indian, in the, in the lobby, she saw him pacing and before he came in and saw me, he was pacing in the lobby and the young lady said to him, sir, do you go to church? And the man said, no, but I probably should. When I got him in the room, I was able to, to, to play off of that and I started to talk to him and I said, here's the risk and I told him all the diseases that could be causing his symptoms and what's going on. This man in his early 20s began to cry. I have seen men in the gang life in LA when I lived in Southern California bawl like little children when I have to tell them they have herpes. This man began to weep. I didn't even diagnose him with nothing. But you know what was most shocking, he said? All the alcohol, all the weed, all the women, and he still felt unfulfilled. That's right. Here we go. Anxiety after sex is normal. Here's how to handle it. This is an article. Let me tell, let you in on a secret, young people. This is a lie. If you're happily married in a committed, loving relationship, when you have sex with your spouse, there is no anxiety. You might be arguing over who's going to wash the dishes, but you're not, you're not, or who's going to put the kids to bed, but you're not, there's no anxiety. This anxiety comes because they want you to believe there's no consequences to living this kind of ragtag, uh, uh, do whatever you want form of sexual lifestyle. Watch this. This is one of the interesting ones I got. The new sexual revolution. Have a world. And you see how they spin the girl and all these different things can still happen. Let me tell you something. God has planned for you to have this the best way possible if you follow what he says do. Look it. Let's go to the third one. The third thing that they have to do to get you to follow the path of Balak, that Balaam told Balak, is that they have turned sex into a drug. 
They've turned sex into a drug. Now watch this. They use technology. So this is Tinder. That's one of the apps. I don't even know if they have Tinder in Jamaica. I have to assume they do. I don't know. Ashley Madison. I've, I've never heard of it, but I found out it's an it's a app for people who want to cheat on their spouse. So the devil is using technology to hook people up. And don't go home and download any of these apps now either. I rebuke your phone if you do it. I pray it bursts. The battery explode. The devil is going to use technology. He didn't have technology back then. And what the world tells you is that this is the way you get connected to people. They say you start with lust, and lust is built off of your sex hormones, testosterone and estrogen. And we're going to talk more about that here in a second. Then they say it's attraction, which is the dopamine, the norepinephrine, the serotonin. Dopamine is what gives you the drive. Adrenaline gives you that rush. That's norepinephrine. That's, it gives you that rush. But what attaches you to the other person is oxytocin and vasopressin. What I want you to look at is the scientific layout that they give you is exactly the opposite of the way God says to do it. This is what the science says. They put the cart before the horse. The first thing that's supposed to happen isn't attachment. It is to, know, it's to get to know the person. It is discovery. And as you be in a Christian friendship, get to know one another, you get time for oxytocin and vasopressin in a very slow manner to begin to bond you together. But the bond is not so strong because it's not physical, you're not sleeping together, that if you need to, you can back out before it's too late. But when you start with lust and you sleep with a person, all three of these phases seem to happen all at once. Why do the Bible say that the two become one flesh? Because when you sleep with the person, testosterone shoots up in a man. The dopamine is released with orgasms. The adrenaline is released with the rush of the whole thing. There's some serotonin released. But what's most dangerous when you sleep with someone is the release of vasopressin and oxytocin. Oxytocin is the same um, a tr um, neurochemical uh, agent that when a mother is nursing the child, it is oxytocin that is released that bonds the mother to the child. When a um, husband and wife have sex the way God says, they spend their life releasing oxytocin together in their conversations, in their long walks, in their cuddles, and then in their sex. And that connection grows and they bond together. And the longer they're together, the more bonded they become. When you sleep around, you make the bond, you break the bond. You make the bond, you break the bond. You make the bond, you break the bond. Finally, one day you go to get married to make a bond that lasts, and all of your ability to bond and it lasts is gone. Look at the science. I mean, I won't go through all these, but the same thing. It shows you the stages. They have it backwards all the way around. There's another one here, lust and attraction, then attachment. They talk about the prefrontal cortex. In all of these studies, they're saying the same thing. How love affects your brain. Look at this. It affects attachment and bonding. Euphoria. All of that. Your, your, first, ever, your first experience of sexual euphoria should be on your honeymoon. If that is what happens, then you and that person share an experience no one else has. Here's what the research says. When, you, when it's your spouse on your honeymoon, or even the day after your honeymoon if you're all too tired, when it, whenever that first experience is, what happens is you experience that euphoria together and you relate. You, your brain connects that experience with your spouse so that when you see another woman or another man, 
you don't have that connection, you don't have any attraction. Your only attraction sexually ultimately comes, to the, comes back to the person who you are intimate with the way God says. What I'm trying to tell you is that you can hijack your long-term sexual and romantic happiness because you pay all of your money up front living in sin now. All right, last one. What the devil wants you to do and what he's trying to do to get you to do what Balak did to the children of Israel under the counsel of Balaam, he wants you to deny that there are any consequences to sexual sin. That's where he wants to get you to. I'll go through these quick. The first one is, the more, what we found is that in the 1970s, 80s, and early 90s, in America, they said, if you masturbate, if you use condoms, and if you watch pornography, it will be good for your sexual health. They, they said it. They told us in our public schools, we're going to pass out condoms to everybody. We're going to dump thousands of condoms, free condoms in the public health clinics, and we're going to make sexually transmitted diseases and HIV go away or down. You know what happened when they passed out all them condoms? The sexually transmitted diseases, as you can see on this CDC-based cur uh, curve, went up. The more condoms they pass out, the worse the sexually transmitted disease situation gets. I can show you multiple shows of it here. I mean, you can see it all the way. You can look chlamydia. I mean, we, we have, right now, when we treat people for sexually transmitted disease in America, we have to treat them from the, I don't know, I'm trying to say this. so it's a, We have to treat their face just like we have to treat other parts of their body. People get chlamydia in their eye. Babies are being born with congenital deformities because of these diseases. Every year in America, 24,000 young women are made infertile because of sexually transmitted infections. 24,000. They want you to believe there's no consequences, but there are. Look, early sexual involvement is associated with youth violence, use of tobacco, alcohol, and other drugs. Why? Because you mess with that dopaminergic system in the brain. According to a recent national survey of, in America, 63% of sexually active adolescents reported wishing they had waited longer before becoming sexually active. And 78% of adolescents surveyed believed adolescents should not be sexually active. Yet the adults in America and in the West are telling the kids that as early as at 13 years of age, they should be sexually active. Our society is sick. They have bought the lies of Balaam and are practicing what Balak practiced. Let me show you. They want to pervert men. So how did that happen? The guy on the right is Hugh Hefner who had the Playboy Mansion. The guy on the left is a guy named Kinsey who has, to this day, a research institute on sexology at Indiana University. And this guy was a pervert. He, he believed children were sexual beings. He did some terrible things. But they, he got Hugh Hefner, and both of them were students of Aleister Crowley, the famous occultist. I don't have time to get into that. So one of the things that comes out of that is this love for pornography. And with pornography comes a, another sin. Ellen White calls it a secret sin. It is the sin of masturbation. Now, you're a college student, so I'm going to talk to y'all straight. If you engage in these things, you will be caught up and you can become an addict to it. And much worse things happen. Watch this. Here's the research. What pornography does to your brain and how to quit. With success stories and science-based research. This is not Christian literature. 
The secular world is realizing that pornography is one of the most destructive forces unleashed on society. I'm going to submit to you that in a few years, they're going to say the same thing about marijuana. But we'll talk about that later in the week. Watch this. This is what pornography does. On the left is a normal brain. In the middle is your brain on heroin. On the right is your brain on pornography. I hope you see it. Right? All right, well, let me make it a little bit more plain. Here's another, another scientific picture of the brain on pornography. The top is healthy volunteers. If you look at the bottom, you see that the compulsive pornography users have lit up in the areas of the brain associated with pleasure. What happens when you repetitively use pornography, it's like a drug, you develop tolerance to it, but the, oh, your entire dopaminergic system is messed up, just like marijuana does. Your entire dopaminergic system is messed up so that you don't experience pleasure normally, and because dopamine is what gives you your drive to do things in life, you, be, you lose ambition, you lose parts of your brain. Watch this. So one of the things that's come out is that this, um, this is called Delta Fos B, and the normal response to drugs is on the left. Repeated drug exposure, or pornography, is that line in the middle. Use-dependent plasticity leading to sensitized responses to drug and environmental cues. Let me show you what that means. Let me give you some, some of the, 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 the wordage from the, from the article. You get this buildup of Delta Foss B, which is, look at this, is what it says. Chronic overconsumption of pornography and massive overflow of dopamine causes Delta Foss B to accumulate in critical parts of the brain. Don't miss this, young people. Delta Foss B brings significant physical changes to the brain. You can see that in the image we showed already. Beginning with hyperreactivity to specific cues that affects the brain, rewards circuits to the developing, to the developing addiction. Now watch this. A new cycle is developed where Delta Foss B makes you overconsume internet pornography, which would in turn increase the layers of Delta Foss B. The new rewiring, it actually train, changes the structure of your brain. The new rewiring would create more physical changes in the brain, making you even more dependent on internet pornography. That's the science. Here's what, look, at, look at what else the science says. The hypothalamus activates test the testes to secrete testosterone when you look at sexually explicit material. This crafts a brain that is constantly generating testosterone and heightened sexual desire. Struthers published that in 2009. Instead of allowing boys to focus on school, sports, and music, sexually explicit material causes a ramped up sex drive where the minds are inundated with sexual thoughts. Bam! Here's what Balak did. He turned them into perverts. So that every girl that goes by, all you see walking by you, young man, is a collection of body parts. She's no longer a person. That's what pornography does. It dehumanizes women. And then, young ladies, this is why you ought to be careful. You know, they say you, could, you should be able to dress any way you want. But let me, call you, let me tell you, as a Christian woman, you don't just dress any way you want. As a Christian woman, you dress modestly. You cover yourself up. You wear clothes that does not fit you too tight. Why? Because many of the men around you are already sick with this disease. More importantly, you don't want that kind of attention. You want the attention to go to Christ. Watch this. So what happens? You develop an addiction. Fantasy is where it starts. Then there's a ritual. This is the masturbation, the watching of the stuff, which leads to the acting out, which leads to the shame. And it cycles around. It starts in the mind. You know what Jesus said? If a man looks at a woman 
and lusts after in his heart, he has committed adultery with her already. Jesus said it. You can't do that. Wow, now watch this. Watching pornography rewires the brain to a more juvenile state. Did you get that? It actually makes a grown man more childish. That's what the secular research says. Watch this. In the long term, pornography seems to create sexual dysfunctions, especially the inability to achieve erection or orgasm with a real-life partner. It damages your marriage before it ever started. Marital quality and commitment to one's romantic partner also appear to be compromised. <laughs> when you spend your time and money on this filth and foolishness now, you will have to pay a cost later on being never able to have a happy marriage. Look, this is what the research says. Pornography shrinks the brain areas associated with motivation. That's that dopamine pathway. Uh, does X-rated media make you lazy? They literally now know that it shrinks parts of the brain. One of the parts of the brain that shrinks is the frontal lobe, the very part of the brain where the seal of the living God is supposed to go. Satan will set you up to receive the mark of the beast in your hand by shrinking your frontal lobe now. So, I want to go back to the fact that God's plan is the best plan. Here's what the research says. Poll shows sex within marriage is more fulfilling. I'm going to read this because it's probably too small for you to see it. This is three of the points. About 88% of Americans say they are happy or reasonably content with their married sex. And three quarters report that sex lives are reasonably fulfilling. That's according to a, a, a national poll of over 1,000 married Americans commissioned by Parade Magazine. And Parade Magazine is not a Christian magazine. Look at what they say. In researching for my book, and this is my friend, uh, Walt, Dr. Walt uh, um, Whitmore, in research for my book, uh, His Brain, Her Brain, uh, How Divinely Designed Differences Can Strengthen Your Marriage, I found stunning research that shows. Here's the three things this book shows. Number one, sex is better in marriage. Number two, sex is better among religious or spiritual couples. Somebody ought to say amen. Number three, he found sex is not better if you cohabitate. If you just live together, it doesn't work. I tell you that to tell you that many times our church, we tell you what not to do. I'm going to tell you that God wants you to have a very happy, fulfilling sexual life when the time is right, when the person is right, and when God can bless it. If you have sex outside of God's plan, the demons enter the bedroom. But when you're married and you're inside God's plan, angels can enter the bedroom. Here's what Ellen White says. She says, Adventist home, page 327. Oh, we are again, let me say this. We are again at the border of the promised land. That's where we are now. We are again at the border of the promised land, the heavenly Canaan. Here it is. She says in Adventist home, page 327, the history to be repeated. Near the close of this earth's history, Satan will work with all his powers in the same manner and with the same temptations wherewith he tempted ancient Israel just before entering the land of promise. Watch this, young people. He will lay snares for those who claim to keep the commandments of God and who are almost on the borders of the heavenly Canaan. He will lay snares. That's the music. That's raunchy music. That, 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 that just tells you to go on and do all kind of foolishness and filth, he sets the snares. Watch this. 
He says he will, she says he will use his powers to their uttermost in order to entrap souls and take God's professed people upon their weak, weakest points. Those who have not brought the lower passions into subjection to the higher powers of their being, those who have allowed their minds to flow in a channel of carnal indulgence of the baser passions, Satan is determined to destroy with his temptations, to pollute their souls with licentiousness. This is his plan for you young people. This is why Paul says in Revelation, sorry, in Romans chapter 13 and verse 11, he says, and at that time, that somebody kicked the, 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 the thing there. And, and at that time, knowing the time, that now is high time to awake out of sleep. For now is our salvation nearer than when we believed. The night is far spent. Church, listen. Paul is speaking to us. The night is far spent. The day is at hand. Let us therefore cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. Let me tell you something. NCU is a blessed place. You are a blessed young group of young people in a blessed institution. But God's full blessings would flow even more if we all committed to being faithful to the call he has given us. That's why Paul says, let us walk honestly as in the day, not in rioting and drunkenness, not in chambering and wantonness, not in strife and envying, but put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ. And look at what he says, and make not provision for the flesh to fulfill the lust thereof. You see, young people, if you give yourself everything you want, your body will conspire to kill you. Let's finish this thing with this. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 9 says this, Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God. I want you to hear this, young people. Be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor adulterers, nor, uh, nor, nor, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind. That covers all kinds of stuff there nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. And I can stop here and look back at my life and sometimes I think about the wretch that I've been and I say, Lord Jesus, if this is the case, how can I possibly be right? How can I possibly be saved? But I've got to keep reading. I've got to go to the next verse because the next verse gives us liberation. It says, and such were some of you. Don't tell me you're born a certain way and you can't change. Such were some of you. It's not how you were born. It's how you're reborn. But you are washed. You are sanctified. You are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. I want you to get it. There's liberation in the blood of Jesus Christ. There's victory in the blood of Jesus. Paul says that you should put on Jesus Christ. Put him on and make no accommodation for the flesh. You see, the problem is if you keep feeding the flesh with that music, with that TV, with that pornography, with that chitter-chatter, with the well, who's messing with you on social media and the DM, you keep feeding the flesh, your spirit will remain powerless. Cut off the world and watch how God, in his mercy, as you study his word and turn your eyes to him, be amazed at how God delivers you from the sin that so easily besets you. 
Word of God said, and such were some of you. That is the great hope that we have. You don't have to be whatever you were. There's victory in Jesus. You don't longer have to live in the no-tell motel. There's victory in Jesus. He can give you freedom. He can give you liberty. Jesus can give you victory. While my wife is singing, if you want to come down front and join me again, I'm going to pray over you. Join me down front. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.